All right. First Kings chapter 18. If I were to ask you what comes to mind, what one word comes to mind when I say the word Elijah, what would, what would you think automatically? You might say prophet, right? Prophet automatically might be your answer. It should be a typical answer because that's what he did, right? You might say miracles because he was associated with miracles. You might say boldness because we see Elijah as the bold prophet of God standing against the prophets of Baal. But the first thing that would come to your mind in all, all likelihood would not be prayer. It's not probably the first thing. If I said Elijah, the first thing that came to your mind would probably not be prayer or man of prayer. And yet, Elijah at his very foundation, as I've seen already many times, is a man of prayer. And we're going to revisit that subject of prayer again tonight. We've already talked about an entire message on prayer from James chapter 5. We're going to revisit the subject tonight, and the reason we're going to do that is because Elijah keeps praying. He won't stop praying. He's always praying in, in key situations. We've seen it again and again. We know from James chapter 5 that there was a time when he prayed, and it didn't, and it, and it stopped raining, right? It stopped raining. Uh, we know also that he prayed to God to resurrect the widow's son, and that happened. And we know that he prays again in the showdown against Baal, the prophets of Baal, he prays there as well. And he's going to pray again at the end of chapter 18. We're going to see it again. And, uh, and as, we near, uh, you know, as we near the end of this chapter, we're going to see, once again, Elijah is a man of prayer. He, lo- he lived close to God. He walked with God. He communed with God. He was in vital relationship with God, lived in dependence upon God. Edward Payson, a pastor back in the 1800s, said this. He said, prayer is the first thing. Prayer is the second thing. Prayer is the third thing necessary to minister. Pray, therefore, my dear brother, pray, pray, pray. So tonight we're going to look at Elijah, the praying prophet. Now last week we left off at verse 40. Elijah was challenging the prophets of Baal. And uh, he said, whichever God God answers by fire, either Baal or the Lord God, that is God. And look at verse 38 of chapter 18. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Then Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And so the people confessed that the Lord is the true God of Israel, and the prophets of Baal are executed. Now again, as I said last week, this, Israel was a theocratic nation. In other words, they were a theocracy. They were a nation ruled by God. And they had certain laws they went by, which are in the word of God. And God's, God had no toleration for any other rivals. In other words, no other gods, right, to be before him. And if that were to happen, the person promoting such idolatry would be put to death. That's in the scripture. That was their law under this theocracy. And so when they put these prophets to death, understand that was the law of the land of Israel. Now, we're no longer living in the theocracy of Israel today. So we don't do that anymore. So don't go out and kill your, you know, Jehovah Witness friends or Mormon friends or whatever. We don't do that anymore. We're not in a theocracy as Israel was. But let's move on to verses 41 and 42. Look at verse 41. Now, Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel And he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. Now we're thinking about Elijah, the prophet uh, who is praying. 
And uh, let me first explain why I believe he is actually praying. Uh, the statement in verse 42 is, is the one we want to look at. Look at it again. He crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. Now, the first time I noticed this verse was because of James chapter 5. I was looking at James 5, 16, 17, 18. And it had a reference, a cross-reference to 1 Kings 18, 42, as if to say, oh, that's when he was praying. That's when he prayed again for to, to rain. And I looked at the verse and I thought, well, how do we know this is him praying here? It didn't seem like there was enough evidence for me. It doesn't say he's praying in verse 42. It doesn't say anything about it. It doesn't say the word prayer in verse 42. Uh, it just says this. He crouched down on the earth and he put his face between his knees. So is that enough to say he's praying? Well, the more I looked at this, <clears throat> the more I looked at the entire context and thought through this, the more I realize, and I'm convinced, he is definitely praying. I have no doubt about it at all in my mind. And we're going to look at that context tonight. And as I did that, by the way, as I looked at this, more and more, I realized as I began to look at what other people thought about this, I joined a great uh, majority of Bible teachers. Uh, I don't put myself in their category, by the way. I joined a great category of Bible teachers, many, many, the great majority by far, men like Spurgeon who believed he was praying here, men like A.W. Pink, Men like Thomas Constable, uh, a commentator from Dallas. Men like John MacArthur, who believes it. Men like Dale Ralph Davis, a great Old Testament preacher. Uh, men like Philip Ryken, Kyle and Delich, the old commentators from back in the day, and many, many others. And last but not least, men like James Roscup, the professor Mike Sprott had at Master's Seminary. And as we're considering this praying prophet tonight, I believe we're going to find seven truths that will help us in our prayer life. Number one, the basis of his praying, the basis of Elijah's praying, verse 41. It says in verse 41, again, now Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the roar of a heavy shower. Now, in all probability, Ahab had not eaten that day at all. This is the day of the showdown between uh, the Lord God and the prophets of Baal. And uh, it says in verse 26 of chapter 18, it says that, from morning till noon, the false prophets call in the name of Baal. Verse 29 says, when midday was passed, they raved. That word means they prophesied. They, they, the prophets of Baal prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. That's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Most of the day is gone already. Then Elijah takes time to rebuild the altar. Then he prays that God will send fire. God sends fire. Then they have prophets executed. Can you imagine how long would it take to execute all those prophets? Long time, right? It's, it's dirty work. Somebody had to do it, right? Elijah was participating in it. So I don't think anybody took a lunch break that day. I doubt it seriously with all that's going on. And in verse 41, Ahab, Elijah says to Ahab, hey, why don't you get a bite to eat because it's going to rain real soon. You haven't eaten all day probably. It's going to rain. I want you to get something to eat. Do you know what that is, by the way? That is Elijah being gracious to Ahab. Now think about that. That's amazing. Elijah showing grace to Ahab. The king who's a Baal worshiper, this king Ahab. This king Ahab who is a promoter of Baal worship. He is the guy who called Elijah the troubler of Israel. He is the guy who sided with the prophets of Baal. Uh, this is the guy, this is the king that is being treated graciously by Ahab, by, by Elijah rather. In fact, Ahab later on at another time is going to call Elijah his enemy. And yet... Uh, Elijah is doing what Jesus will later say in Matthew 5, love your enemies, right? He's showing grace to his enemy. He does, not Ahab, he does not hate Ahab, by the way. 
Elijah is not one who hates Ahab. He's simply a prophet of God sent to tell him the truth. And he tells him the truth in a bold way. And yet he does so with, he's doing so with grace now, with respect. He respects the king of Israel. And uh, he not only, by the way, Elijah not only shows us how to pray, he shows us how to show grace, how to do both. You know, there's a time for stern, bold truth to be presented from the scripture without a doubt. And yet we're to do that even tempered by love, right? We're to speak the truth in love. That's what we're to do. We're not called to be hateful to people, by the way. We're not called to be, Christians aren't called to be mean to people and put them down and, and disrespect them. We're called to be kind with them, to be patient to them. That's what we're called to do. Uh, and we're talking, we've been talking a lot about rain in this passage, but don't forget God sends his rain on who? The just and the unjust as well. And so even God is gracious, common grace to those who are who don't know him, who, who even hate him, as Mike said, who spit in his face. Um, he's gracious to them. And we're to account, as First Peter says, we are to give an account of the hope that is in us with gentleness and reverence. And so Elijah is concerned that Ahab get his supper before he gets caught in a downpour. Now, you know, we're tempted, aren't we, when the world treats us badly? What's our natural temptation? To treat them badly in, in return, right? Well, you did this to me, I'll, I'll get back at you, and that's our temptation. But God says, love your enemies, bless them that curse you. But what's this about the, the, this phrase, the sound of a roar of a heavy shower? Well, according to verse 43, and we're going to look at that later, there's not a cloud in sight. Listen to what Elijah says. Uh, Go up and eat and drink, for there's the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. Well, verse 43 says there's not a cloud in sight. There's no rain anywhere. Nothing's happening. And it's been three and a half years since it's rained. And things are so bad, Elijah had to be fed by ravens. And things are so bad, the brook dried up where Elijah was at. And then he had to go see a widow woman, and she was gathering her last meal because it was such a terrible drought. And the king and his servant are out there scouring the countryside trying to find grass to feed their animals. It's really, really bad. And, in, and according to First uh, Kings 17.1, uh, Elijah says there's not going to only be rain, there's not going to be any dew either, either one of them. So there's nothing but withering crops out there and dead grass and parched tongues on everybody's, that, that everybody has. And how can Elijah say, sounds like rain to me? How can he say that? How can he have such confidence, such conviction? Maybe he's lost his mind. <laughs> he's thirsty. and he's, Is he being optimistic? Is that what he's doing here? No, he's not doing that. There's only one explanation in giving the, te- in the text here. He's basing his conviction, he's basing his confidence on the word of God. First, he's basing his conviction on what the Bible had previously taught about rain. He knows what the scripture teaches about rain. For example, let me read this, Deuteronomy 11, and we've looked at a little bit of this before, but not this passage. Deuteronomy 11, verse 11, says this, But the land into which you are about to cross, now they're going to go into the land of Canaan, the land in which you are about to cross to possess it a land, is a land of hills and valleys that drinks water from the rain of heaven, this land Israel. It's good rain. A land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning even to the end of the year. It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that he will give the rain for you, for your land in its season, the early and the late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. 
He will give grass in your fields for your cattle. That's what they were looking for. And you will, be, you will eat and be satisfied. Beware that your hearts are not deceived and that you do not turn away and serve other gods. That's what Ahab had the nation doing. And worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord God has given you. So all Israel knew. They should have all known. They've been taught this. They knew this. That if they disobeyed God, if they got into idolatry, God's going to withhold the rain from them. So what do they do about this? What are they supposed to do? Well, they should repent, right? They should repent, forsake their idolatry. And then King Solomon prays in 1 Kings chapter 8, in his prayer, 1 Kings 8, 35 and 36, he says this, When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, there's no rain because they have sinned against you, and they pray toward this place and confess your name, when they confess your name, and turn from their sin when you afflict them with no rain, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel, and send rain on your land. And so when there's, when there's repentance, and people repent of their sin of idolatry, and they turn to God and they confess him as the Lord God, then rain is going to follow. Now, something like that took place in verse 39 of chapter 18. There is a definite turning to God or a definite acknowledgement or confession of God. Look at verse 39. When all the people saw the fire of God fall from heaven, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, these are citizens in Israel. There's a lot of them there. I don't know how many. In verse 19, uh, it says, Elijah uh, said, Gather to me all Israel on Mount Carmel. Verse 20, it says, Ahab sent a message among all the sons of Israel. He gathered many people in Israel to come to, to this place for this showdown. Looks like a, many good, a good many people were there to acknowledge that the Lord is God in this showdown, even if Ahab hadn't done it. They still had. Many people had. So based upon what the Word of God previously taught, about the rain, rain falling or the lack of rain, Elijah can now de- confidently declare that it's going to rain again. He says there's rain coming. He can say that because he knows what the Scripture says. not a mystery. This is a general truth taught in the Scripture. But secondly, there's a specific truth here. Elijah is basing his conviction, this strong conviction in verse, uh, in verse uh, 41. There's going to be there's the sound of the roar of a heavy, I can almost hear it, of a heavy shower, basing it on the fact that he's got a personal word from God. Look at 1 Kings 18.1. Remember this? It happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will do what? I will send rain on the face of the earth. God's going to send, he's going to send rain on the face of the earth. Elijah knows it's going to happen. Because, why? Because God told him it was going to happen. God said it, and, God, and he believes it. Now, a long time ago, there was a saying that was popular. It was everywhere. Preachers were talking about it, preaching it from the pulpit. Had, it was almost like you had to say, it was almost like a Bible verse. It was on bumper stickers and cars. You heard it in churches all the time. And it went like this. God said it. I believe it. And that settles it for me. You ever heard that? God said it. I believe in that. Settles. And then someone made a song about it. They were singing that everywhere and all this. And then somebody came along and said, wait a minute, that's not what it is. It's this way. God said it. That settles it for me. It doesn't matter if I believe it or not. Oh, well, that's true. It doesn't really matter if we believe it or not. God's word is true regardless of what we believe or don't believe. But it will do you no good if you don't believe the word of God is the point. If you don't believe the word of God and what it says, it will do you absolutely no good. But Elijah believed what God said, and he acted accordingly. He's going to pray because God said, I'm going to send rain. 
And so he could pray on that basis of, of the Word of God. You know, when we pray, our praying shouldn't be based on whims. How often do we pray? People tell me all the time, I can't, you know, I can't seem to get an answer to, to this prayer. People pray on the basis of their whims. Do we not do this all the time? People pray on the basis of what they would prefer in life. I would prefer this. Therefore, they pray that way. People pray on how comfortable they can be in life. I want to be more comfortable than I am right now, Lord. So can you make me more comfortable than I am right now? We pray this way all the time, right? You know, we, we shouldn't pray that on that basis. We should pray on the basis of what the Word of God says and how it says to pray for. We don't pray according to our selfish desires, do we? We pray, in fact, the Scripture says to pray against our selfish desires and to pray for an unselfish attitude. But if I base my praying on the Word of God and what it says and what it says to pray for and how it says to pray, then I'm praying in accordance with God's will, right? I'm praying in accordance with what God wants, with what he's pleased with, what, what, what he's revealed already. That is the only way to pray. There is no other way to pray. And when you pray that way, by the way, that means something, an investment of your time. You're going to have to study the word of God to see what it says about prayer, right? To see how to, how to pray. And so Elijah knew rain was coming, even though there was not a cloud in the sky. He says, I can hear the rain coming right now. There's no rain yet. But for Elijah, it's just as sure as if it was already happening. So he bases, the basis of his praying is his conviction that the word of God is true. He bases his prayer life on the word of God. Secondly, notice the privacy of his praying. Verse 42, the privacy of his praying. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel and he crouched down on the earth, put his face between his knees. Now while Ahab was eating, Elijah was praying. He was praying. He went up to the top of Carmel. By the way, he didn't actually go up to the very top of Carmel, the very peak. He goes near the top. We're going to see that because of verse 43. You'll see that later in verse 43. He goes to a place near the top, but he's alone with God. He's alone with God. Now, he's been with people all day. He's been with this crowd of people all day at the showdown, right? He's been with the false prophets of Baal. Can you imagine spending an entire day watching these people going around? And we talked about the dance where they were limping around the altar and calling upon Baal and all this stuff is going on. He spent all day long with these guys. He spent all day long with a king who's an idolater. Uh, All these people, and he's now alone with God. He wants to be alone. It was a great victory, but now it's time to get alone with God. And he is alone with God for a very specific purpose, and that is the purpose of praying for rain. So, you know, it reminds me, when I I saw this, I couldn't help but think about Jesus when, when he would go out to teach the multitudes, and he would heal the, heal the sick, and he would minister to the people, what would he do often after those long days of ministry? He would go pray, right? For example, Luke 5, 16, Jesus himself would often slip away into the wilderness and pray. Often he would do this. After a long day of exhausting ministry, he didn't just go hanging up and take a break. He went and prayed. Even before long days of ministry, he would pray. Mark 1, for example, says, In the early morning... While it was still dark, Jesus got up. By the way, some of you people, it gets dark in the early morning, and maybe you've never seen that before, but it says Jesus saw it, okay? In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there, praying in private, praying to his heavenly Father. Before the public would converge on him, before he would meet those people out there in the world, he got alone with his heavenly Father. That was his practice. That was, that's, by the way, it's been the practice of the great saints through all the ages. Read about those guys. You read about that through church history. Guys, uh, they, they spent 
early mornings in prayer to God. Nothing can substitute for the time alone with God, by the way. Nothing can substitute for it. Not Facebook, not uh, social media, not a computer, not anything else. Nothing can substitute for the time alone with God. If you miss on that, you truly miss out. It's very important. And even food was not the priority in this case. Prayer prayer had to be done first. It was work that had to be done. And so he did it first, first and foremost. We forego, I tell you what, we forego the time of prayer alone with God at our own detriment, and not only us, at the detriment of others whom we could have been praying for. We could have been praying for those people in church and otherwise and our lost loved ones and so on. So private prayer time, vitally important. Thirdly, notice the humility of his praying, verse 42. Humility, crouched again, he crouched down on the earth, put his face between his knees. Now think about that. First of all, think about the flexibility involved, right? But I doubt you could get into a more humble posture than this, outside of verse 39, where it says the people fell on their faces before God. Many people have commented about this. This is a very strange... Uh, many people in the Bible were fell on their face before God to pray or worship God. This is a very strange position he's in, even though it's similar to that. For example, James Roscup says about this, Mike's teacher, that he was seeking God in prayer as obvious in his posture. Matthew Henry says... He put himself into a strange posture. That's what I thought. I thought this is a strange posture to be in. He cast himself down on his knees upon the earth in token of humility. It's true. Reverence, importunity, and put his face between his knees. That is, he bowed his head so low that it touched his knees, thus abasing himself in the sense of his own littleness now that God had thus honored him. Think about this. Just before this, Elijah was the man, right? He was out there with great boldness. Facing the prophets of Baal. He was mocking them, it says in one of the verses. After all, you guys are crazy with what you're doing here. Mocking them and bold before them. And now, before God, what's he doing? Totally different attitude. He's completely humbled before God, bowing before the King of kings and Lord of lords. This is just humility. Now, we might wonder, well, why, if God said there was going to be rain, why pray for it? God said there's going to be rain. Why pray for it? If, well, in fact, if God says he's going to do something, then why pray for anything? Why pray at all, right? Some people have said that. In fact, some, one person told me he didn't believe in prayer because God's going to take care of everything anyway. And that's not how it works, though. Well, there's several reasons why we should pray. Why should we pray? Well, for one thing, involvement. The Lord wants us to be involved in his work. He, doesn't do, he could do this. Look, he, he doesn't need us. Does he really need our help? No, he doesn't. He could do this by himself easily. But he has chosen to involve his people in his work. He wants us to be involved. We're not robots. He wants us to be involved. And again, the biblical teaching, as we've said again and again from the pulpit, God is sovereign over all things, but, over all things, but we are responsible, right? We're responsible to pray, among other things. That's one reason we pray, to be involved. And humility is another reason. It humbles us. When you pray, you're humbling yourself before God. You're submitting to him, and you're saying, Lord, I'm not in charge. You are. We often act like we're in charge. He's the one in charge. We're submitting our will to his in prayer. Jesus said, Jesus prayed this way, not my will, but, but yours be done, right? Not my will, but yours be done. That should be our prayer as well, praying with this attitude of humility. And then another thing is dependency. In prayer, we're declaring our dependency upon God. I absolutely dependent. We're saying, in effect, we need you, Heavenly Father. We can't do without you. We can't take another breath without you. We can't. Uh, because God gives us the breath to breathe. We can't do anything today without you. We're wholly dependent upon you. He's our Father. We're, we're his children. And so 
Children depend upon their father, right? Another thing is reverence. You know, in prayer we say, Our Father who, are, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. We want to reverence God in our prayers and, and, get, and praise him for his greatness. So prayer is not an option we can take or leave. It develops within us an attitude of humility, of submission, of reverence, of dependence, all these things. Number four, the, the expectancy in his praying. The expectancy in his praying, verse 43. He said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go back seven times. Now here's another way to know that he is praying in verse 42. He now tells the servant to go look toward the sea. Uh, by the way, this is the first time the servant of Elijah is mentioned. And he's instructed to do this. He's instructed to go up, meaning to go up higher on the mountain, showing that Elijah is not on the very summit. He's very near the top, not on the summit. And so the, the servant has to go up higher. Why must he go up higher? So he could look out on the sea. What sea? The Mediterranean Sea, which wasn't all that far away. He wanted to see the Mediterranean Sea. By the way, it's been shown on... Mount Carmel, that there are places where you can be very near the top and not see the sea at all. But if you climb just a few minutes more, you can look out and see, have a full view of the sea. And that's been proven to be true. So Elijah was not high enough to, to view the sea. But why does he want his servant to view the sea? Well, there's an interesting verse in the Gospels. Jesus gives this comment, a meteorological comment, by the way. Luke 12, 54. Jesus says in Luke 12, 54, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming. So, well, that's a very interesting verse because the reference, the cross-reference to that is 1 Kings 18.44. And the ESV Study Bible has a very interesting comment on this. It says this, A cloud arising in the west over the Mediterranean would have brought moist air that condensed, the shower in other words, as it climbed the cooler hills of the Palestine. It would start there and climb and become a shower. I said all that because I didn't have any meteorological experience, so I need some backup on that one. But why did his, Elijah send his servant higher up on the mountain to see the sea? Well, to see if there was a rain cloud, a rain cloud forming. Is there a rain cloud out there? Well, there's no rain in sight. What are you talking about? He says, go see. Why, do you do, why does he do that? Because ob obviously he's praying for rain. He's looking for rain because he's been praying for rain. He crouches down on the ground and he prays for rain, and, he, and the Lord said he was going to send rain. So he does the next logical thing. He looks for rain, you see. He's expecting an answer to prayer. He's not praying and thinking, well, this is never going to happen. He's praying with an expectancy that God's going to answer his prayer. He, didn't, he doesn't even doubt it at all. Is that how we pray? Do you pray that way? That you're expecting to receive an actual answer to your prayer? Do you, you expect to, be, to have your prayer answered, or do you view prayer as like a last-ditch effort? You know? Well, you know, maybe if I get lucky, just maybe, God will maybe intervene somehow, some way. Is that how we do it? How many times have we prayed for something definite and then forgotten about it immediately? Or thought, well, this is not going to happen anyway. Why bother with it? You know, I don't think we expect God to answer our prayers. We're just hoping for the best oftentimes, aren't we? But that's not how Elijah viewed prayer. He didn't see it that way. He prayed with expectancy that the Lord would hear his prayer, that the Lord would answer his prayer, and that's how we should pray. So what have we learned so far from Elijah, this business of praying? Well, number one, it's to be based on the word. Secondly, there must be times of private prayer. Must be. That, this doesn't mean that there can't be times of public prayer with the church or other people. Must be times of private prayer, definitely. Number three, we must humble ourselves before God. 
Number four, we should pray with an attitude of expectancy. Number five, notice the perseverance of his praying, verse 43 and 44. The perseverance of his praying. Verse 43 says, he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go back seven times. Came about the seventh time that he said, behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up into the sea. The first time Elijah's servant goes down to the sea, where he's sent to go down there to see if there's a cloud, he comes back and he says, there is nothing, nothing at all. Wait a minute, isn't Elijah the great man of prayer? There's nothing at all. Have you ever prayed for something and you got, and the only answer you were rewarded with was there is nothing? There's nothing at all. There's, there's no answer. And then you gave up and quit praying, right? How many times have we done that? We didn't get our answer, so we gave up, quit praying, doesn't work anyway, right? We often think that we pray once for something and that God's supposed to act immediately. That's how we think. And if, we, if he doesn't, maybe God's not going to answer this prayer. Now, I'll tell you what. There are reasons that God delays answers to prayer. There are reasons that God will never answer a certain prayer. I'll tell you what. If you are not asking in faith, then we're doubting God even as we're praying. Then how can God, why would God answer a prayer like that? If I don't believe that God's going to answer my prayer, and yet I'm praying for something, why is he going to answer that prayer like that? It's, it's like the double-minded man in James 1 who was wavering between doubt and faith. And it says in James 1, the man who prays that way should not expect, it says, he should not expect he will receive anything from the Lord. You don't have to expect anything from God. You should certainly pray, you should not pray with an air of expectancy if you're praying that way, right? You should pray, you should expect nothing at all. You know, sometimes that's the reason. Sometimes we're asking with wrong motives. We want something. But we, want, we have a wrong motive for asking God for this thing that we're asking for. We're praying for something. Our motive's all wrong, totally wrong, and God doesn't answer it. Could be that we're praying with unconfessed sin in our hearts. Maybe there's sin in our life and, and we haven't confessed it. And God says, hey, first of all, you need to get it right with me before you pray that prayer. Maybe that's the problem. And it could be that we're praying for our will to be done and not God's. That is one of the top the top ones, right? Well, we don't say it that way. Lord, I want my will to be done, not yours. We, oh, we're all about God's will, right? Except a lot of times in prayer, hey, I really need this, I want this, I need this, I want this. I've done it too. All of us have done it. And so we, you know, it's, there are things that God, God knows our needs, by the way. And we pray for our daily bread, as the scripture says, definitely. But I'm saying there's times when we're praying and it's, it's not God's will at all. So we cannot expect an answer to prayer if we're violating the guidelines that God himself has set. Can't expect it. But if we're praying as God would have us to pray, and we're praying with the right heart, still, he may make us wait. He may make us wait for an answer. And that's why we need to persevere in prayer. We persevere. We don't give up. We keep at it. We keep praying. Uh, we, we keep uh, asking God. We keep seeking God. We don't stop. What did Jacob do in Genesis chapter 32 when he was wrestling with the Lord that night? He said this, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That's how Elijah prayed. He didn't quit when he heard the, the words the first time. There's nothing. What if he would have quit then and there? He kept on praying. He told his servant, go back a second time. And the servant went back a second time, and he came back and said, there's nothing. We'll go back a third time then. And he came back and he said, there's nothing. We'll go back a fourth time then. And a fifth time, and a sixth time, and a seventh time. And finally, the servant says, behold, a cloud. Oh, it's a very little cloud, kind of the size of a man's hand. It's not much of a cloud, but it's something. 
I think Elijah would have been happy with his, his size of a pinky, right, at that time. But, you know, we need to persevere in prayer. You know, maybe you've been praying a long time for a lost person, someone, a lost relative, friend who doesn't know the Lord. You prayed and prayed and prayed for their salvation, and they seem to have absolutely zero interest in the things of God, right? How many of you have done that? I've done it. So should we quit praying for that person? Is, it, is that person a lost cause in the, in the eyes of God now? We should just give up and say, forget it. I told you about that time where George Mueller prayed, prayed for five individuals for years to come to Christ. Years. And it took years for them to come to Christ. So don't quit praying. We don't know what God's going to do. We have no idea what he's going to do. You know, the famous theologian, Augustine, back in the 400s, uh, 4th or 5th century, uh, he had a mother who prayed for his salvation. Did you know that? Uh, he, wasn't, he was kind of stumbling along in life and fumbling along in life, and he, his mother kept praying for salvation. He didn't get saved till he was 32 years of age. Nevertheless, his mother prayed, and she saw she didn't give up. Mike and I have been asked to pray for, and many of you, all of you in here, have been asked to pray for all kinds of situations, right? Salvation for people, spiritual growth for people, marriages, wayward children, the list goes on and on and on, pray for all kinds of things, and, you know, we pray for those things, sometimes we're tempted not to pray for those things, aren't we? Sometimes we want to give up and say, well, this is a helpless cause, this isn't going to happen, but that's where perseverance comes in, and I tell you what, it's a sweet thing to finally see the answer to prayer, when you persevere in prayer, so Elijah was a man who persevered in prayer. Number six, the answer to his prayer is praying. The answer to his praying, verse 44, verse 44, it says at the end of verse 44, Elijah says, go say it to his servant, go say to Ahab, <clears throat> go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot that, and, and, and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. After three and a half years of an absolutely miserable drought, finally, the nation of Israel sees what Elijah's servant saw first. Hey, is that a cloud in the sky? Do I hear maybe light, uh, rain drops and, and maybe thunder? The sky grows dark. The wind begins to blow. A downpour occurs. And I'm telling you, it's a downpour. It definitely is. And so Elijah says to his servant, hey, go warn Ahab to get back to Jezreel as soon as possible. What was Jezreel? That was where he had his palace, well, at least for the winter. He had his real palace in Samaria, but he had kind of a winter palace in, in Jezreel. And so he had to go back. He said, tell him to get back there. Elijah's concerned that the king's chariot's going to get stuck in the mud. It's going to rain hard, and it's going to get muddy real fast. And he's concerned that if it gets too muddy, his chariot's going to get stuck in the mud. He can't get back. Again, grace, right, from Elijah. It's, I mean, it's raining cats and dogs. It's about ready to. And it's going to be difficult to get back through all that mess. But the bottom line here is that God fulfills his promise to Elijah. He said, I'm going to send rain. Elijah prays for rain. Now God is sending the rain. And it makes James, the half-brother of Jesus, give this comment in James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, just like us. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again. This is it right here. He prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Elijah prayed, and God answered his prayer. That should not be unusual, by the way. 
That should not be unusual for the people of God. And then finally, number seven, the energy from his prayer. In verse 46, the energy from his prayer. It says, Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Now, Ahab is riding in a chariot. Uh, Elijah looks like he's training for the Olympics. He's running. It's about 17 miles to Jezreel, by the way. 17 miles. Not a short distance. Ahab has eaten. Elijah has not. He's worn out from the day's activities. He should be exhausted. He's on foot. And yet he outruns Ahab. And they go to Jezreel. Now, that's about three-quarters of a marathon. Anybody here ever run a marathon before? 26 miles, right? We've got a guy in our church training for an ultra-marathon right now. 26 miles is enough, right, Jimmy? 17 miles or so. That's a long way. So we go from Elijah the praying prophet to Elijah the running prophet, right? He's on the run now. Notice the phrase, he girded up his loins. They had those long robes they used to wear back in the day. And he, to gird up loins means he picked up the, the, the robes that were down near his feet and gathered them up. So as he ran, he held that because he wouldn't trip over his robe that way. They all did that when they ran. Now, um, how, did, how does he do this, though? How does he outrun the king in a chariot? Well, the explanation is in verse 44, verse 46. It says this, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah. The hand of the Lord signifies strength or power from God. So God's power, God's strength was in Elijah. Was Elijah a natural athlete? Well, I mean, in chapter 19, he does a lot of walking, and he does some running, but that's not the point here. The point here, it says that there's a reason given. It's the hand of the Lord upon him. And when the hand of the Lord is upon an individual, that individual is enabled by God to do things he couldn't normally do. He's strengthened by God to do the task that what? That God wants him to do, right? He can do, so if God wants you to do something, by the way, he'll give you the strength, you'll rely upon him to do that task, whatever it is. You know, again, one of my favorite, absolute favorite passages in the entire Bible, without a doubt, is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 and following. In fact, the whole chapter is great. I say, I said it before, I'll say it again. The Lord gives power to the weak, and those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall, shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. The Lord gives strength to his people when we seek him in prayer to do the things that are very difficult to do in life. But why go to Jezreel? That's where Jezebel lives. I'm, I'm telling you, Jezebel has no love for Elijah, okay? And we're going to see that in the next chapter. And I, I think when he went there, by the way, he didn't stay very long. I think he didn't hang out there. I think he, he left. We don't get the impression he stayed there at all. But, but why did he go there? Well, could it be that once again, and there's different reasons given, but it could it be that once again the Lord is showing himself to be God on Ahab's behalf? Because this is a miracle that takes place. I mean, Elijah outruns a chariot, okay? That doesn't happen typically. It doesn't happen. And it's not because it was raining and there was a downpour. That's not what it says. It says the hand of the Lord was upon him. In fact, by the way, where it says he outran Ahab, it literally means he ran before Ahab. So Ahab must have seen this. Can you imagine you're in your chariot all of a sudden, you're like, what's happening here? How's this guy doing this? And the reason is because the hand of the Lord is upon him. By the way, Ahab, Ahab can never say God didn't work in his life. God didn't show him grace. God didn't show him grace a number of times. God didn't show him his power a number of times. He can never say that. He was certainly gracious to Ahab. 
as was Elijah gracious to Ahab. And there's no excuse. By the way, if God shows us great grace, we need to respond to that grace. Don't toy around with God on that. But how do we gain energy? How do we gain strength for the day ahead of us? People say, I'm tired, I'm weary all the time. How do we gain strength and energy? We get alone with the Lord in prayer. That's where the strength comes from. We wait upon God, right? We may never run a marathon. We may never run a marathon. But even if our bodies are breaking down, nevertheless, as Paul said, our outward man may be perishing, but our inward man can be renewed every day, right? Day by day because we're waiting upon God. Waiting upon God. And prayer will allow, allow us to recharge our spiritual batteries and do what God wants us to do. You know, Elijah's example in prayer is filled with instruction, isn't it? He teaches us that to base our prayer on the word. He shows us the need for private prayer. He shows us that we should humble ourselves before God. We're not all that, right? Should be humble before God. He, he shows us that we should expect the answers to prayer. Uh, he teaches us that we should persevere in prayer. He teaches us that God does answer prayer when prayed in, uh, in his will. And he teaches us that we can be energized to do his work through prayer. Edward Payson said this, Prayer is the first thing, the second thing, the third thing necessary to minister. Pray, therefore, my dear brother. Pray, pray, pray. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we are grateful again for your word and for what it teaches us. Lord, we know that we should depend upon you and we should seek you in prayer. We should humble ourselves before you. We know these things. We've heard these things. We preach these things. And yet, how many times we don't, we don't take uh, action in this? Just pray, Lord, we would get serious about this business of praying, knowing, Lord, this is how you work through people. This is how you bring people to saving faith in Christ. This is how you do a great spiritual work. We pray we would be people of prayer, and we praise in Christ's name. Amen.